This is the RTE News at One with Brian Dobson. Good afternoon. The headlines this Monday lunchtime. Pressure on RTE to provide full details of all exit packages as politicians criticise the drip feed of information. A man who killed his brother-in-law because he believed he had an affair with his wife is jailed for 10 years. And the widow of the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who died in prison last week, has pledged to continue his work. The news in detail now with Brian Jennings. The chair of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, Alan Dillon, has said RTE needs to publish the names of every senior executive who received an exit package since 2016 and the amount they received. It comes as the RT Director General Kevin Backhurst and the chair of the RT Board, Shunni Rahali, met the Minister for Media, Catherine Martin, our political correspondent, Paul Cunningham. The media minister requested a meeting with RT's top brass as the controversy over the exit packages given to senior executives continues to rumble. It's currently unclear if Mr. Backhurst has yet secured revised legal advice which would allow him to disclose today the details of such payments. The Director-General is under substantial pressure on the issue with the Taoiseach Leo Radcar calling for greater clarity from the station. This morning, a senior Fine Gael TD said all exit packages since 2016 should be disclosed, including the names of the recipients and the Alan Dillon, who sits on both the Oireachtas Media Committee and the Doyle Public Accounts Committee, said on RT Radio that this level of transparency was crucial in the context of any future funding from the government. Paul Cunningham, RT News, Leinster House. A man who killed his brother-in-law because he believed he had an affair with his wife has been jailed for 10 years. Andy Cash, from Highrath, Clara and County Kilkenny, was found not guilty of the murder of John Cash but guilty of his manslaughter at Hebron Road in Kilkenny City almost two years ago. Our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds. John Cash's family left court today saying they did not get justice after Andy Cash was jailed for killing John, who was his brother-in-law, believing his own wife had an affair with him. Andy Cash had a row with his wife about it on the 3rd of May 2022. He then went into Kilkenny City and drank a few pints before spotting John Cash. Andy shouted abuse at John, pulled out a knife and stabbed him twice in the shoulder and back. The 40-year-old died in hospital an hour later. Miss Justice Eileen Creedon took into consideration his offer to plead guilty to manslaughter at the start of the trial, his apology, his age and his lack of previous violent offending. She sentenced Andy Cash to 11 years in prison for manslaughter with the final year suspended. Paul Reynolds, RTE News, the Central Criminal Court. Yulia Navalnaya, the widow of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who died in prison last week, has pledged to continue his work and claimed that he had been poisoned on the orders of the Russian president Vladimir Putin. Ms Navalnaya delivered the message on her husband's YouTube channel ahead of a meeting with EU foreign ministers in Brussels. From Brussels, our Europe editor Tony Connolly. Yulia Navalnaya delivered a tearful and impassioned message to tens of thousands of supporters on YouTube, beseeching Russians not just to share her grief, but to share her fury at those whom, she said, wanted to kill Russia's future. She urged supporters not to be afraid, to fight for justice and free elections, and to get their country back. 
She said Vladimir Putin had murdered her husband because he'd wanted to kill any hope that Russians might have for their future. She accused the authorities of hiding her husband's body in order to ensure that traces of a military-grade poison had disappeared. Ms Navalnaya was in Brussels this morning to meet EU foreign ministers who are still assessing how to respond to his death. The tarnish of Michal Martin said his death and the crackdown on those publicly mourning Navalny said it was shocking the extent to which the fundamental human spirit was being suppressed in Russia. As we approach the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he said the last thing Ukrainians wanted was to be part of the Russian Federation and to be subjected to the same brutality as that shown to Alexei Navalny, his family and his supporters. Tony Connolly, RTE News, Brussels. Transport Infrastructure Ireland has said that the Metrolink is needed for Dublin because the country is outgrowing its current transport infrastructure and that congestion could cost the Irish economy €2 billion per annum in the next decade. The comments were made during their opening statement on the first day of on board Planola's oral hearing into the proposed rail link. Samantha Library reports. Metrolink project director Aidan Foley said that in 2021 Dublin was ranked the 35th most congested city in the world and that a Dublin commuter will be stuck in traffic for an average of over 213 hours a year. He said that in Swords, where the Metrolink is due to begin, 8,000 workers currently commute to Dublin city centre, but only 12% use public transport and that congestion between the suburb and the city is reaching critical levels with journey times of up to 50 Five minutes. Mr Foley also told the hearing that Metrolink will take approximately nine years to complete and that people's lives will be disrupted during its construction. He said TII are satisfied that buildings above the route will not suffer significant adverse effects and that damage to property, if any, will be cosmetic. A property owner's protection scheme and communications plan have been established. Around 200 people attended the opening day of the oral hearing, which is expected to run for at least five weeks. Samantha Library, RTE News, Dublin. And now the weather. RTE Radio 1 weather with Grant. For effective, efficient and balanced warmth throughout your home, choose Grant Uflex Underfloor Heating. Visit grant.ie. Today will be mainly dry with sunny spells, cloudy during the afternoon, with patches of light rain or drizzle in the north later. Highest temperatures, 9 to 12 degrees, in light to moderate westerly winds, becoming southerly and freshening later. Brian. Thank you, Brian. Still to come this lunchtime, 10 years for a Kilkenny man who killed his brother-in-law, believing he had an affair with his wife. The family of the victim criticised the sentence as too lenient. RTE bosses summoned to a meeting with Media Minister Catherine Martin. We'll talk to the Chair of the Public Accounts Committee, Brian Stanley. The oral hearing opens into the Dublin Metro plan, with the case for the €9 billion Euro project. Also a new fleet of electric buses for Limerick and Irish Government cash for the redevelopment of Belfast's Casement Park ahead of Euro 2028. Are we there yet, Dad? Not yet, honey. Dad, are we there yet? Uh, 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 not yet, no. Are we there yet? No, no, we're not there yet. Dad. I know, I know. Are we there yet? No. Are we lost, Dad? Uh, I think so. 
Should have gone to Specsavers. Book an eye test online. <laughs> At Irish Life, we've been helping people make smart investments for over 80 years. For actual trusted advice for your money, search Irish Life or contact your financial broker or advisor. A better life with Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Irish Life Financial Services Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Irish Life Financial Services is tied to Irish Life Assurance for life and pension products. Hello again, you're listening to the news at one. The family of a father of nine from Kilkenny who was killed by his brother-in-law has said they have not got justice. Andy Cash from High Rath, Clara in County Kilkenny was found not guilty of the murder of John Cash but guilty of his manslaughter in Kilkenny City almost two years ago. Cash was sentenced today to 11 years in prison with the final year suspended. Speaking after the sentencing hearing, John's sister Bridges said the family was devastated and believe that the sentence handed down today was too short. We're not going to be satisfied until the day we get justice for what happened to our brother Johnny. He did not deserve this. He was too good-hearted, too kind-hearted to his family. We depended on him. He was all we had in this world. John was everything to us. He was our dad, he was our mom, he was our phone call away, he was our lifeline. To ten sisters and two brothers he was, and to his own immediate family, his wife and kids, we just... We're just, we're speechless. I just want, and my family, they're, they're all in there and they're a bit camera shy and they're all a bit upset and devastated. Why wouldn't we? We just want justice for our brother. We're not going to be satisfied. We're not going to rest until we get what we deserve for our brother. He was only 40 years old, only gone off the grandfather of four kids, the father of nine, and... It's like what I said earlier, he was everything to he, to me, to his sisters, his two brothers, and to his own kids and his wife. We just love him so much, and we go through the pain and hurt of every day of losing him, because every day we're expecting John to walk back in the door in his old jolly, laughing way. We will never see that again. Bridget Cash, well, let's talk now to our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds, who was in court. Paul, what was heard in the course of this trial about the, uh, the killing of John Cash? Well, we heard that Andy Cash believed his own wife had had an affair over 12 years ago with his brother-in-law, John Cash. So on the 3rd of May 2022, he had a row with his wife uh, before heading into Kilkenny City and drinking a few pints uh, where he spotted John Cash. Now, John had gone into town that day with his own wife, Elizabeth, and his sister and his daughter to shop and to collect his social welfare. So when Andy saw John Cash, he shouted abuse at him. His sister, Elizabeth, said that Andy shouted, you're dead when I get you, to her husband, John. Andy Cash then got into his car and drove up the road at speed with the driver's door open and again confronted John Cash at another point in Kilkenny City at the Hebron Road. Andy had a knife. John backed away. He was squirting water at him, uh, but John was stabbed twice in the shoulder and back and died an hour later in the hospital. Now, Gardaí recovered the knife, the murder weapon, from uh, a trailer or, or from a truck where it had been pushed down deep into gravel and covered with a block. Andy Cash told his brother-in-law, quote, you got what you deserved as he lay on the ground. And after he was arrested at the scene, he told the Gardaí that, quote, he had it coming to him for 12 years. He also claimed that he believed John would be out to get him later. The jury, uh, he was he he accepted he accepted a plea. He would plead guilty to manslaughter, but uh, he was tried uh, for murder. The jury found uh, the thirty-year-old father of three not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter after Andy Cash had claimed provocation as a defence. So, what was said today, Paul, at the sentencing hearing? 
Well, Miss Justice Eileen Creedon said today that Andy Cash had armed himself with a knife that day and had begun shouting and gesticulating at John Cash and his family. He attacked Mr Cash in broad daylight, she said, in front of his family and then sought to conceal the knife by burying it in rubble and continued to shout at the family. The judge also said it was clear that the victim was deeply loved by his own wife and children and his death had left an enormous gap. She took into consideration his offer to plead guilty to manslaughter at the start of the trial, his apology, his age and his lack of previous violent offending. She sentenced him to 11 years in prison with the final year suspended, effectively a 10-year jail sentence. Paul Reynolds, crime correspondent, thank you for that. Media Minister Catherine Martin is meeting RTE Director General Kevin Backhurst and the Chair of the RTE Board, Shuan Lee Rahali, this lunchtime to discuss the ongoing crisis at the broadcaster. The Minister summons the two to her department after further revelations over the weekend about exit packages paid to former RTE executives. The Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, has said today that there's frustration in government at the constant drip-dripping of new revelations in relation to RTE controversies. On Saturday, Mr Backhurst said former Former Director of Strategy Rory Coveney had received a package on his departure from the organisation, widely reported to be at the order of €200,000. Speaking in Galway this morning, Dar O'Brien said not all the issues in relation to RTE were historical and that this was a concern for him and his Cabinet colleagues. He said he expected an update of the situation at Cabinet tomorrow. Constant drip-dripping of, you know new revelations is not helpful so I think the meeting today that Minister Catherine Martin is having with uh, the chairperson and the Director General of RT is very important. I think um, any further information that's required should be given. Uh, I understand from listening to, to Kevin Backhurst that there there may be some legal constraints there and I would just encourage RTE to, uh, to um, find a way forward that there can be full transparency in relation to exit payments in particular. This isn't all historical, this is recent um, and I think that's certainly a frustration that I have and government colleagues have. Like we respect and value public sector broadcasting uh, and, you know, whilst doing that to make sure that RTE is on a safe and secure footing into the future that can, that can deliver this state broadcasting that we need, these issues need to be addressed and need to be addressed fully uh, and openly. Housing Minister Dara O'Brien will earlier the chair of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, Alan Dillon, said RTE needs to publish the names of every senior executive who received an exit package since 2016 and the amount they received. Brian Stanley is chair of the Public Accounts Committee. He's uh, joining us now. Very good afternoon to you, Deputy Stanley, and thank you for talking to us today. Is, is that a call that Alan Dillon's made with which you would agree? Good afternoon, Brian. Yes, not just that, that we should have a list of all those who are uh, former executives who received exit packages uh, since since that period. Uh, but we also need the amount. But we also need, also need to see the criteria uh, and the rationale and justification for those payments. Uh, were posts extinguished? Was it redundancy? Was it a type of redundancy? Was it just, was it just some kind of sweetheart goodbye packages? Uh, goodbye money? Uh, we need to know that. What was the justification? What was the rationale and the criteria for those payments? And it's, I have to say to you, Brian, that I find this extremely frustrating, the Shared Public Accounts Committee, because uh, you will recall me saying they were right throughout uh, the middle of last year mm-hmm. and into the autumn, RTE uh, executives needed to put all of the information up on the table, all payments, all of the arrangements that have been made that were all unusual arrangements that were made uh, in-house mm-hmm. uh, so as we could get a clear look at what was going on but instead of that, what we've had is, is information coming uh, literally drip by, drip by drip. And that's not that's not adequate and it's not satisfactory. Mm. Uh, we need to be able to get to an end point with this 
where all of the all of the issues can be teased out, uh, where the corrective corrective actions can be put in place, and RT can get on it as being a public sector broadcaster. Well, as you know, RTE has said, and Kevin Backhurst has said that they're seeking fresh legal advice in relation to revealing this sort of information. Paul Cunningham, our political correspondent, is on the line. Perhaps Brian Stanley, you stay with us just while we get an update on this from um, from Paul. Um, any indication yet, Paul, if that legal advice has been provided? No, uh, we don't know if it has been provided, and that, I guess, is is the key point here. Um, the uh, team from RT, the Director-General and also the Chair of the Board, entered the uh, Media Minister's building around quarter past 11. The meeting was due to start at 11.30am, and they're still inside. Um, but we don't have uh, a direct uh, clarity on that key issue, Brian, as to whether there's new information on, on the legal position or not. And what about the purpose of the meeting, this meeting, from Minister Catherine Martin's point of view? What what has she or her department been saying about the uh, the the purpose of it uh, f- for, from her, in her regard? It's to underline the requirement um, for RT to be as trans- transparent as possible and to deliver information as quickly as possible. That's been something of a, of a mantra of the minister over four months, and yet it's coming back to this issue of exit payments. It also has to be said, I guess, is that um, the uh, members who are part of the Doyle Public Accounts Committee and Iraq's Media Committee are also expanding um, what they want from the station. So as a new um, issue comes to the fore, then there's a request for not just information about about now, but information going back several years. So there's something of a moving target for RT, but the, the key thing here is whether or not RT is going to move on this issue of disclosure or not, um, because that clearly is going to lead to a big clash between government and the station if the position from the new Director-General is that he can't move because he's legally constrained. Right, well, if that meeting includes, and if we do hear from uh, Kevin Backhurst or the Chair of the RT Board, we'll return uh, there to the, uh, the Department. But as I say, we're still on the line, Brian Stanley, Chair of the PAC, Brian Stanley, in relation to this question of payments and the point made there by, by Paul Cunningham, there has been this criticism of a drip feed of information, but it's also that the, the, the ground has been shifting as well as this controversy has unfolded over the last several months and new questions are being asked and raised. Well, new questions are being asked and justifiably so. Could I just, just make one point in relation to the meeting with Minister Martin? Minister Martin, uh, she seemed to be indicating uh, towards the end of last week that she doesn't meet with the Director General, that that wouldn't be proper. And I've, I, I made the point last week that she should meet the Director General along with the Chair of the RTE Board uh, and should have been doing that way back because of the scale of the crisis that's unveiling at RTE. It shouldn't, we shouldn't be just waiting for today for that to happen. The person in charge of operations needs to be in there She is the sole shareholder on behalf of the public. That's the key point here. She's there to protect our good. She's there to protect the good of the public, the government and the state. That's her job there. And I welcome the fact that it's happening, but it's coming late in the day. Uh, In relation relation to the drip feed, what I would say to you there is there's always a very simple solution to this. It's better to to open up all of what's happening at RTE and disclose all of the facts around all of this as much as they can um, as quickly as possible. What I would say in relation to and any you legal make the prohibition... Point, as, as much as they can, and, and that really goes to the heart of this, doesn't it? Because if the legal advice is that the, this information can't be released, um, well then, wh- where does that leave Kevin Backhurst? Well, the question I, the question I would ask, uh, the question I would ask is this, why in the name of God is your confidential legal clause is put in to goodbye money for senior executives? In a lot of cases, money they shouldn't have got you know, sweetheart deals on the way out because you're, you're walking away from a job. Why is that the case? Why is there, why is there confidentiality clauses? This is a public sector broadcaster. You know, this isn't, uh, 
this is this isn't uh, you know some small outfit mm-hmm. around in the back street. So, Deputy Stanley, are you be. saying if, if if Kevin Backer has put his name to a confidentiality agreement in relation to any of these departures, then should he be considering his position? I want to be fair to Kevin Backhurst, and I've tried to be fair to him since he came into the position. He has made some very welcome changes. Uh, he has changed. Uh, he's moved people out of the positions that they're in. A lot of the senior executives are gone. He's also brought in, brought in some welcome reforms and some new openness in RTE. And I welcome all that. I want to give him a chance to do that. Mm-hmm. I would be critical of. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, get into a position of uh, you know because a person makes one mistake or maybe entered into something that maybe they felt the reasons for that. Uh, I'd like to hear mm-hmm. the reasons why it was necessary to put in these confidentiality clauses. But mm-hmm. I think in fairness to Kevin Backhurst, any fair judgment of him would say that he's made a, he's been making a fair stab at cleaning up an, an, an unholy mess at the top of RTE. Mm-hmm. But I would question why why is it's necessary for legal confidential clauses to be stitched into good packages around goodbye money for exit for for executives who are exiting. Right. Uh, there's clear criteria there for the, you know this Brian as well as I do. Mm-hmm. The ordinary staff at RTE, there's clear clear terms there for redundancy payments mm-hmm. for exit packages for the ordinary staff. It should be the same for the executives. Are you are you hoping, are you intending to have Mr Backhurst, other senior RTE executives, other board members back into the PAC in the coming weeks? As soon as possible, Brian. Believe me, I would love to have seen this wrapped up by the end of last year. And that was, that was kind of the timeline I had in my head. And that we would issue a report in, in early January because of the delay in some various investigations, the Grant, Grant Thornton, et cetera. Uh, we haven't been able to do that. And then we have this latest scandal around the, uh, around the goodbye money. So as soon as possible, we hope to have men before the, uh, Dáil Public Accounts Committee so as we can deal with the outstanding matters. If, uh, you know, issue a report and move on. But we have to balance. We have to balance matters here because the members of the public accounts committee, you know, to put a good bit of work into this. And you know, it's worth pointing out to your, to your listeners that during the time we've been dealing with this, we've also then dealt with over twenty twenty five government mm-hmm. departments and other state bodies with their accounts. So this has been going on in tandem with and, our other work. And I so we do need to get to a conclusion. Strictly speaking, RT doesn't fall um, within your remit because it's not audited by the controller and auditor general. That, that's something I think you'd like to see changed. And I think even the RT chair has said she, that's something she'd welcome. Yes, that's, that was Sinn Féin position back from right, right throughout last year. We felt that it should be brought back under the uh, under the remit of the control and auditor general. Uh, which makes it directly amenable as a commercial semi-state to the uh, to the Public Accounts Committee and gives us greater powers. Uh, it's unfortunate that that was actually changed in the in the mid nineteen nineties. Legislation was changed. It needs to be changed back. I welcome the fact now that uh, people across the political spectrum are coming to the Sinn Féin position on this, so as to have that oversight to create more transparency, to create more openness. Uh, and that we have proper accountability from RT. That's welcome. The idea, what we need to get to here, Brian, is that we need to have a better RT at the end of this, but the sooner we have all the information, the sooner we get to the end of it, that we can turn around things, put this matter to bed, and RT face the future. Very good. Brian Stanley, Chair of the Holy Council Committee, thank you for that.
Now, the first day of the long-awaited oral hearing to Dublin's planned Metrolink has heard congestion could cost the Irish economy €2 billion Euro per annum in the next decade. In its opening statement to the Borplanola hearing, Transport Infrastructure Ireland said that the underground rail link is needed because the country is outgrowing its current transport infrastructure. The TII said it expected the route from Swords to the city centre will take approximately nine years to complete and said it recognised the people's lives will be disrupted during construction. Around 200 people attended the opening day of the hearing at Dublin's Gresham Hotel, including our reporter Samantha Liberi. So first of all, Samantha, what do we know at this stage about the plans for Metrolink? Well, Brian, as you said, Metrolink has been talked about now for more than 20 years. It's had many names and many completion dates, but this oral hearing is based on the most recent plans which were submitted by Transport Transport Infrastructure Ireland in September 2022. And they're proposing a rail link between Swords in North Dublin to Charlemont in Dublin South City Centre. It would involve the construction of 16 new stations along that route serving areas such as Swords, Ballymun, Glasnevin and Ranla. And it would connect key places like DCU and Trinity College, the Matter and the Rotunda Hospital and they say it will connect Swords to Charlemont in 25 minutes. There'd be a train every 90 seconds. It will carry 53 million passengers a year and to break that down that would come down to 20,000 passengers per hour in every direction and the comparison is that the Lewis Green Line currently runs about 9,000 passengers an hour in each direction. Most of the 18.8 kilometre route will run underground. That'll be a first for Ireland and Transport Infrastructure and say the key to this really will be that public transport in the capital will be fully integrated as a result of this project. It's due to commence in 2025, all going well, and it will take around a decade to complete. And the latest estimated cost is €9.5 billion. What detail, Samantha, was given today about the disruption that the project is likely to cause? Well, the Metrolink director, Aidan Foley, set out um, an opening statement where he was the first to hear from today. um, And most of today will be given over to to their submission to to the oral hearing. They say Metrolink is needed for Dublin because the country is outgrowing its current transport infrastructure and congestion could cost the Irish economy about two billion per annum by 2033. They say in 2021, Dublin was ranked the 35th most congested capital in the world and a Dublin commuter stuck in traffic for an average of 213 hours a year. They say in Swords, where the Metrolink is due to start, 8,000 people commute to Dublin city centre every day. Only 12% use public transport and that key arterial route that um, between Dublin Airport and the city, um, there's congestion reaching critical levels there. We heard today with journey times of up to 55 minutes. In terms of disruption, Aidan Foley said that the people's lives will be disrupted during the construction, which will take approximately nine years. But TII say they're satisfied that building buildings above the construction won't suffer significant adverse effects. They say the damage, if any, will be cosmetic and they have measures to monitor and reduce noise and vibration from the construction. They say they've learned a lot from the construction of the Port Tunnel and the Lewis Cross City project and they've also established a property owner's protection scheme which will allow people pre and post construction to get a survey done of their property if there is any damage to apply for remedial work of up to €45,000 and that doesn't preclude them from taking legal action. We've heard about 17% of people have signed up to that in the affected areas already. They also say communication will be key and that they'll keep communication running throughout the project um, and and that they've already made amendments to this project as a result of feedback they've gotten since 2018. Very good. Uh, Just finally, very briefly, you can, Samantha, how long is this oral hearing expected to continue? 
Well, it's expected to run for at least five weeks. Um, most people who have made observations are allowed to speak. Not all of them have taken that opportunity, but there was 300 submissions in all. And um, we'll hear from public representatives and residents over the coming days. And it could lo- run longer than the, the five weeks. All right. Samantha McBrary at that oral hearing. Thank you for that. With less than three weeks to go before the two referendums on March 8th, the independent organisation which offers free legal advice, FLAC, has urged a no vote on the Care Amendment to the Constitution, which proposes deleting the current reference to women in the home and replacing it with a new article relating to family care. Today, the Labour Party said it would be supporting a yes-yes vote on March 8th. Our reporter, Fia Crocchiani, is joining us now with more on this. First of all, uh, what have FLAC been saying today, Fia well, yes, Brian, it's uh, only two and a half weeks until the family and care referendums on March 8th, as you said. And as you mentioned, one of the big developments today has come from the Free Legal Advice Centre. Now, FLAC says it will campaign on a yes-no vote and outlined its reasons in a detailed statement today. FLAC says it will vote yes on extending the definition of family beyond families founded on marriage alone, as it believes it will help diverse families. The group said the proposed reference to families based on other durable relationships would extend constitutional protection to single-parent families, as well as to cohabiting couples in long-term relationships. But in in the separate care referendum, FLAC says it will campaign for a no vote, as it believes the proposed wording is ineffective and implicitly sexist. FLAC has also said it is highly regrettable that voters do not have the choice to simply delete the current provision relating to women in the home. Vicar, the Labour Party also launching its referendum campaign today and backing a yes-yes. Well, Labour, as you said, launched its campaign in Dublin City today and it's calling for a yes-yes vote in the referendums. Its leader, Ivana Bacic, told me a short time ago that while the party has some concerns over the referendum wording, it believes a yes-yes campaign is in Ireland's best interests. We did express some disappointment initially at the wording, but we did tease out the wording with government representatives during the Dáil and Shannon debates and we're satisfied that the two referendums do represent real a real step forward towards a more contemporary text, towards a more fair Ireland and towards a more inclusive and more equal society. So we see this as a calling for a yes, yes and. We want to continue to campaign beyond the referendum on, the, on better supports for care in particular. That's Labour Fiacre. What about the other parties? Well, of course, any referendum campaign will always have differing views and our two referendums on March 8 are no different. So Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, the Greens, Sinn Féin, the Social Democrats and PBP are all voting yes, yes. Ain too, however, is advocating for a no, no vote. And Fikra, the National Youth Council reminding everyone, but particularly young people, that tomorrow is the deadline to register as an elector if you want to vote in these referendums. Yes, the National Youth Council of Ireland has been very clear that 5pm tomorrow is the final time that you can register to vote in both referendums, in either referendum. Now, the National Youth Council of Ireland says that more than 700,000 people aged between 18 and 29 are eligible to vote. And its Director of Policy and Advocacy, Paul Gordon, says people can register to vote on checktheregister.ie. Young people under 30 make up about one in five people of voting age in Ireland. So they're potentially a very influential group in electoral events uh, right across this year, including the referendum. So we do want them to uh, register before the deadline. And there are many, uh, particularly those who maybe have turned 18 in the past year, who might not realise that they do have to register to vote. Uh, There's about 70,000 young people who have turned 18 in the past 12 months or so. So it's really important that they do go online uh, to check the register and register or just to double 
double check their details. Likewise, many young people who are studying away from home who may not make it home to vote on Friday the 8th can also quickly and easily change their voting address on checktheregister.ie. And that's Paul Gordon of the National Youth Council ending that report from Fiacra Okiana. Back with more after this short break. Despite low temperatures and high energy costs, it's important everyone stays warm and well through the colder months. It's also important to understand that saving energy where possible saves money and helps reduce the impact on our climate. Simple steps can make a big difference, like turning down the thermostat by one degree, limiting the use of high energy appliances like tumble dryers, or ensuring we don't heat rooms that aren't in use. Government is playing its part too making a range of supports available to help ease the burden on families across the country. For support and advice, visit gov.ie forward slash reduce your use. Brought to you by the Government of Ireland. Music updates on RTE Radio 1. Carol Jam, live. Dark Matter World Tour. Marley Park, Saturday 22nd of June. Subject to license. Carol Jam. With special guests Richard Ashcroft and the Murder Capital. Tickets available this Friday from Ticketmaster.ie. More info at PearlJam.com. Music updates on RTE Radio 1. The RTE Radio 1 Focal Boards are back. John Creighton here inviting you to join me as we celebrate the best in Irish folk music from the past year. Performances from top folk artists like Owen O'Canavoyne, Niamh Berry, Johnny McAvoy and Rhiannon Giddens. The RTE Radio 1 Folk Awards Live, Tuesday 27th of February, Vicar Street, Dublin. Tickets available through Ticketmaster, see rte.ie slash culture. RTE, bringing us closer. Hello again, you're listening to the News at One. Preparatory work has started on the redevelopment of Casement Park Stadium in West Belfast, which has been closed now for more than a decade. The redeveloped stadium will be used mainly for GAA games, but is also due to host a number of soccer fixtures during the Euro 2028 tournament. However, the project has been dogged by uncertainty over how it's to be funded. Our correspondent, Conor McCauley, has been following all this and has some more for us. So the funding becoming perhaps a little bit clearer and the there is an Irish government involvement in this car. That's right. Well, what we had today, Brian, really was, as you said, there's some preparatory work, even though we don't really know how much the final bill will be uh, for the proposed development or, or indeed who will pay for it. Uh, this has been a, a decade in the pipeline. For those who don't know the history, back in uh, 2013, the proposed bill for the redevelopment of Casement Park was around about £76 million, with the GA putting in about £15 million and Stormont supplying the rest. But of course, um, in that intervening decade when the project was mired in a planning dispute, the development costs have ballooned. Uh, there's no actual figure on the build-out cost for uh, today, the today cost uh, for the 34,000-seater stadium, but it could be anything between 150 and £200 million. Pounds. So Stormont uh, is on a very tight budgetary framework. That leaves the question then of who will pay the additional cash. And the Irish government, as you say, has committed to supplying some additional money, and the UK has made uh, some similar promises, uh, but there is an awful a lot of money uh, to be made up. Although, having said that, I mean, I was up at uh, Casement today and there were a lot of people there just watching some of the preparatory work beginning. A lot of people are very glad to see uh, the high visibility jackets in round the stadium today after a decade of, of inaction. And one of the people I met there was uh, Jane Adams, who's a former All-Star and Antrim Camogie player. 
The first time I played in casement was uh, back in 1992, I think it was, when I was 10. Uh, the feelings that I got then just ignited uh, the feeling that I got for the rest of the years to come. Uh, playing for Belfast, it was at the time, against the Dublin team was unbelievable. And being able to grace that pitch that I knew so many people went before me, like say Sambo McNaughton, Grace McMullen was just a dream come true and it just ignited something inside me. Connor, the, the time scale here is pretty tight, isn't it, if, uh, if the stadium is to be ready for the Euros? Yes, it is, Brian. A, a redeveloped Casement Park is one of ten stadia that will host games in the Euros of 2028. Uh, along with the Aviva, it's one of only two host stadia on the island of Ireland. But UEFA have told the GA that major work uh, needs to be underway by the end of May this year, and the entire project has to be delivered by uh, 2027. So we are on a very, very tight time frame, particularly when we're not absolutely clear yet where the money is going to come from. From. But setting that aside for a moment, people who have been supporting the concept of this stadium for a very long time, people like Kevin Gamble of uh, Fail and Fubble, a uh, big community festival based in West Belfast, say, look, uh, setting aside whatever about the Euro uh, 2028, this stadium will have a massive economic boost for the entire city. Yeah, I mean, a, a very historical day. It's great to see the, the contractors on site and, and the, the work for the, the, the start of the rebuilding of Casement Park coming about. Uh, and for West Belfast in general, you know, the, the massive lift that this will give culturally, economically and socially. Um, Casement has always been part of the fabric uh, of West Belfast and this really will be a jewel in the crown for West Belfast. And that was uh, Kevin Gamble ending that report from Conor McCauley. Thanks for that, Conor. Limerick is to get a new electric bus service before Easter. It follows a year-long pilot in Athlone, which saw 11 electric buses funded by the National Transport Authority. In a report today on the performance of those electric buses over the past year, Bus Aaron said that passenger numbers grew by 20 25% during the trial, but admitted that there was a lot to learn about the use of EVs. Bus Aaron CEO Stephen Kent is on the line with more on this. So, first of all, Stephen Kent, the plans for Limerick. Yeah, look, uh, Brian, we've had to, we've had a, a a plan in place now to roll out Limerick because, as you you may have mentioned there, the National Transport Authority are supporting the transition of a lot of our city networks into from diesel into electric vehicle. Uh, so Limerick will be first up, and we're trying to get those operational by Easter, and that's following on the back of maybe uh, a very successful twelve months that we've had of, of implementing electric buses now in the Athlone town. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had a number of learnings and we're trying to apply those learnings now as we roll out and move from Limerick into Galway and Waterford and so on. What's the target at this stage for the electrification of the Limerick bus fleet? Um, well, at the moment, um, I'm glad to say a number of people in Limerick will probably see the first of the buses out there on training. So we're at the process of recruiting. And I would say in the same time, we're looking for uh, people to join our garages and people to join our driving team. So the first of them are out there doing testing at the moment. And the plan is then we're taking delivery of the vehicles uh, right through up to Easter. We've already had the, the support of ESB networks. We have um, a lot of the charging infrastructure now implemented in the city right in the depot that's in Roxburgh and Limerick, so that's already implemented. And uh, it, when we have that, and we have all that resource in place, we'll be rolling that out. And by the end of the year, we'll have at least 50 vehicles um, that will be uh, serving the city of Limerick um, through electric vehicle, which would be mm-hmm. fantastic from an emission point of view. 
You say and as you've you been, know, most of this is all designed and addressed to address climate action. Yeah, you say you've been learning lessons from the pilot project in Athlone. Um, first of all, in, yeah. in terms of the, the utility, the efficiency of electric vehicles, what have you been discovering? Well, there's a huge amount you have to learn even to put the network in, first of all, because there's a huge amount of collaboration you have to do between the manufacturers, with the, the energy providers. And so we now know how to, to do it and implement it and then to scale it. And that was an important development. Uh, as you said here, we also with a lot of work here from the customer point of view. Great to see the passenger group, but they also have come back and told us they love the, 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 the cleaner, quieter journey that we have. And then, as you said, the, the issue that we have now is trying to understand and control the management of the charge management and and EV mm-hmm. technologies themselves. So that is completely separate skill, and we've been doing that, trying to make sure that we train our drivers, train the mechanics in our garages, but equally for all of the support teams then we need to understand how to optimize the vehicle performance particularly over a year and that involves the detailed scheduling and maintenance etc yeah, so there's who, a lot that's starting to come in and drive, inform the earnings for people limit. who drive electric vehicles will know for example that in colder weather they, uh, they, the, the battery charges run down more quickly so that's something that you have to factor in we do. And the other thing we found at the moment, which we probably didn't factor in as much as we thought, is that regenerative braking also probably gives you more energy performance in times when it's even warmer. So it can be slightly more efficient here. And you're right, when you come into colder weather, there's more energy that's utilized and that you have to do it. So you have to take account of all of that when we're planning. Mm-hmm. And these are all important learnings for us because this okay. has been a Pathfinder project. It was nominated by the government and it's here to inform the learning so we can move on. The most important okay. thing is that we we're developing growth and we're trying to develop that growth uh, by, by doing it in a way which will be emission free right, particularly so in the cities and towns we'll, we'll that's look for- really really important we we'll look forward to talking to you again as this, uh, as this is rolled out further appreciate your time this lunchtime returning to the RTE story which we covered earlier that meeting of the RTE Director General Kevin Backhurst and the Chair of the RTE Board Shuindi Rahala with Media Minister Catherine Martin the meeting has just ended Kevin Backhurst has been speaking to reporters so we had a very good construction Constructive, uh, long meeting with the minister, um, reassured her about our commitment to maximum transparency and what we're looking at in relation to that. The next step on that is we're taking legal advice. We spoke to external lawyers this morning about how far we can push transparency and what we can and what we can't say, and they've gone away to look at that, and we should have the advice within the next couple of days. And off the back of that advice, we'll be seeing how far we can push transparency uh, about some of the questions that have been raised. Mindful of we have to respect the law as an organisation and also mindful of all employees' rights at RTE, which is always a considered maximum consideration for us. So once we have that advice, we're in a position to say more about it. So I can't Mr. say any more Parker, right now. You presented in front of PAC, you committed that RTE would be, uh, apply to higher standards of honesty yeah. and integrity. Yeah. And now we hear about these secret exit payments that have been made under your watch. They weren't should secret. You, should mm-hmm. you resign? Are you going to resign? No, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. No, no. I stand entirely by what I've done about trying to move the organisation forward with a new leadership team and make payments which are in the best interest and the best value for RTE. All right, thanks very much. Just ask you to cap future exit payments. Uh, Something we'll look at. Sport on RTE Radio 1.
And it's good afternoon to Siobhan Maddock and Siobhan. Brian, thank you. Good afternoon. Bavian Parsons, Eve Higgins and Eveen O'Reilly have all been included in the Ireland women's squad. That's for the upcoming Guinness Six Nations Championship by the New Ireland coach Scott Bimond. The trio were, of course, part of the Ireland Sevens team that won gold at the recent event in Perth. Coach Bimond has also included eight uncapped players in his squad for the championship, which will begin against France on March the 23rd. Wales have called upon the uncapped Scarlets prop forward Harry O'Connor for their Six Nations visit to Dublin to play unbeaten Ireland next weekend. Both Leon Brown and Archie Griffin will miss the round.